Welcome to Rough Magic Performance Company's podcast, where women's stories take center stage. Season 3, The Rachel Project. The Rachel Project is made possible in part by our donors and by the generosity of Inclusion in Action, an organization dedicated to creating space for people to explore what it takes to advance equity together in our workplaces, neighborhoods, and communities. Leveraging the powers of personal story, the arts, media, movement, and humor to engage individuals in head and heart connections that promote deeper understanding of self and others. The Rachel Project is also made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Hi, I'm Catherine, and I'm one of the co-artistic directors of Rough Magic Performance Company. And I'm Elaine Hopkins, the other co-artistic director of Rough Magic. And we're so pleased to be here with George Keller, who adapted and directed The Rachel Project. So, George, please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is George Keller, and I am an actress and director and writer in the Twin Cities. Um, and I'm so pleased to be working once again with Rough Magic Performance Company. Well, we are so happy to have you. And I, um, the story of how the Rachel Project came to be an idea, I think is a really fun, maybe place to begin in talking about it, of how sort of George, you and I both came across this place separately. Yes. And um, yeah, I don't know. You want to tell it from your, how you okay. first came into contact with the play? Here's how I remember it. So okay. um, I, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell my front end of it because and then you'll tell your, and then we matched up. So I, um, it was during the riots in Minneapolis after George Floyd was brutally murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department. And I was working, um, I had no idea, right? And we're also in a global shutdown uh, because of the pandemic. And I was contemplating my next move in theater and I'd already been directing I had just done Ruby Bridges that was the last very last show that I did for uh, youth performance company um, I directed that and had to adapt that show um, because uh, there wasn't when Christina Ham originally wrote it for stages theater um, or stagecoach can't remember one of those um, the, the father in the play um, didn't exist or just doesn't have a presence and so I had to adapt that one because I thought that that was not great I asked for her permission she asked uh, she said with my blessings and so I adapted and directed Ruby Bridges then flash forward now we're in global pandemic all work is gone and I'm like I think I should just go into directing period because like I think that's where I want to go anyway. And I have, I'm lucky enough to have friends who I have uh, plenty of friends who seem to be Sarah Bellamy. I was working with at the time with Penumbra. Um, and I have a friend, uh, Austin Van, who took over Yellow Tree Theater since then. And um, knowing that I, I was going to be working with black theaters, I, I had small conversations with them and they said, well, you know, think about what you want to direct and then um, bring it to us or let's talk about it. And so while I'm, you know, doing these, you know, uh, 
we met every Monday with Penumbra Theater talking about, you know, what to do and how to move forward and, you know, the racial healing project for Penumbra Theater. While I was going through that and talking with, um, you know, some people there, you know, I just started Googling, like, you know, earliest, because I knew that there had to be plays written by black women before, like the earliest black woman is what I was looking for. And so Angelina Weld Grimke pops up with a play called Rachel. And I was like, hmm, well, let's, let's look at that. And, you know, of course, because it's so old, it's, it's, it's open domain, right? So, um, I kind of set my sights on it. I I went to Seattle in June or so and read the play and I bawled my face off on act 1 at the by the end of it and I I just wanted this story to be told because also at the time that this play was written my grandfather who is um uh the son of previously enslaved people um was would have been about eight or nine years old and mm. about the age of the young kids that are in this play and but he was still in the south at the time so it really was pulling me um to to, to figure this thing out um and then and then the next thing i know i think we were we were reading hurricane diane no it was just before that I I went to the Rough Magic website and I just decided to do a deep dive and just look at just art well all the things you guys have been involved in since you started you know whatever three four years ago and I and I saw that you guys had done a reading and I was like what are the chances of all the plays in the world what are what are the chances and so I then we had then you asked me to do uh, to, to to read um, Hurricane Diane, and afterwards I was just dying to be like, hey, by the way, um, you guys, um, which was at Elaine's house and in the backyard, and I was like, um, I saw that you guys were like interested in like Rachel or you guys had a reading of it, and I really want to direct it, and I'm 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 really all about it, and uh, <clears throat> you guys said to me. Hey, let's um, let's let me and Elaine. We're gonna go and think about this and sort of like, you know, you know, sit over our cauldron and figure out <laughs> and send it up to the spirits and ancestors and figure out how we're gonna get if if this is a really good fit and how we can make this work and make sense and and lo and behold, it happened and I'm so very very thankful. That's okay. so cool to hear. I don't think I knew all of those details of mm. how the play mm. first came into your world. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, and, um, you know, this was a while ago, so I might be wrong, but I don't think we ever actually ended up having the reading of it. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No, because we originally, like, the play was something that I found when doing, um, we were doing, I think, a social media campaign where we were talking about sort of the unsung heroes of American theater, or maybe it was just like Western theater, I think. Um, and like the, the women who have been forgotten by history who shouldn't be. 
And this play came up when I was doing the research around Huda Highlight. And so when I read about the play and about its history of it being, um, you know, a project sponsored by the NAACP and performed all around the country as a means of creating empathy and social change as an anti-lynching play. And I was like, that's incredible. That's an amazing story. Like, why did I not know about this? I majored in theater. Like, how could this have not come across my knowledge? Like, what? And um, and so then I found that the um, I found a copy of the play and I just read it because I was interested in it. And kind of like you, George, like I hadn't cried just reading a play to myself. I don't remember the last time that that's happened, but that I was bawling my eyes out and it but it also on another level I was like how can we do this like it's a lot of actors there's kids like how can you do like we don't have the money for kids like this is it's a big show and require would require to do it in in person it would require a big budget that we don't have um so that's where when you said like I'm interested in Rachel and you had just directed the Parker project for us and I was like well let's do it as a podcast because that is a little less expensive (laughs) but also interesting you know when you have especially with a story that's as emotional and as hard-hitting as this one is like I I sometimes wonder if a podcast I'm I'm really curious how it's going to land because I do think that sometimes that medium for storytelling just hearing it just the Mm -hmm. audio of it that those emotions can land in a different way, in a different place, and can maybe touch people in a different way, too. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So part of me wanted to just, I wanted to just honor this playwright so so hard. I wanted her to be absolutely all the words that she said. Like, I, I, I read it so many times. I... I so here's what I, here's some technical mm-hmm. aspects that made it um, exceedingly um, challenging is that it's free, correct? You see. Um, <clears throat> however, it's a textbook basically that you can then download it's not in any digital format other than it's basically pictures of text right it, that's that's what you have access to so i had to figure out a way to get it into mm. my computer digitally to be able to edit things and i tried and at first i had to research how to do that with this type of a text that comes from like the library of congress or wherever wherever we got it from and um, and then I had to, from there, then figure out how to get it into like some other way that's a universal so that you know you guys can see it and my cast can see it. We can talk about it. I can on the on the fly edit like we do in Google Docs or or, or okay. So in order to get it to that place, first I decided because I always type up any any script that I'm going to do, I, I want to, I was taught this by Lisa Channer, my mentor, my directing mentor, that like that's the best way to like get to know the script in and out before you even start rehearsals when you're going to be directing. Just type up your own script. 
And so I was going to do that, but it was, I found myself needing to edit on the fly and it was just going to take me way too long. So what I ended up, it, it was just, you can tell by the way, I can't even gather my thoughts about it because it was weeks. There were weeks there where I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. Because every time I tried, something would glitch or something wouldn't transfer or uh, the fonts wouldn't match up because it's like the original font that it is in when you even like do the, the, the uh, digitizing of it, that font doesn't exist in anything anymore. So it would make up new words. It, it, it changed like, you know, whole sentences or, and, and would apply them to a different person. It was really bizarre. So it was absolutely maddening. It was crazy. But I will say this. I got to know that script really well. <laughs> Inside really, and out. Really, really well. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, and then, so now once I get it into that format, finally, what ended up happening is now I'm looking at, I wanted to keep it down to six people. And I needed, I was like, okay, who can like, lend their voices to young children. There's young children in the cast. I knew who I wanted for uh, my dear friend, Thomasina Petrus, um, uh, my very good friend, uh, Maya, uh, was my narrator because I knew that she would handle it. She's, all of these people. I wanted my dream cast. I got my dream cast. The problem with getting your dream cast is everybody wants your dream cast. <laughs> so everybody. And they were all working. Essence, for instance, ends up booking a. She's she she booked a show like an actual scripted, uh, for Showtime. She's on a show. Uh, now on Showtime, she shot the pilot, the week that we were supposed to start the podcast. Oh, wow! So things had to get moved around for that. I my other actors, one of them is doing opening his very first show. His own show that he wrote, produced, and directed and got a grant for at Pill House, Mikkel. Uh, Darius is on stage at the Guthrie. Maya is doing a book tour because she wrote a, 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 she wrote a book and shot a documentary. And Thomasina is just Thomasina and it runs an yeah. entire company for Cashew Brittle and then also is a jazz singer that's sought after from all over the country. Well, she's raising a family. But anyway, so there was all of my challenges with trying to get Rachel up and running. And then with the editing, what I found out that I needed to do is I needed to edit out. There was, Angelina Will Grimke was a very, very young woman when she wrote this. She was 19-ish, 18, 19 when she wrote it. Um, and in, in college, I, I think she was going to either Harvard or I don't know, one of, one of the, the biggies. And, um, you know, she comes from her parents are both educators and super smart. And she was a poet um, and decided to go for it, you know, and wrote this play. And it was the one that was used. Um, that being said, and then also looking at the at the time, the play was exceedingly long because this is a time. This is an era where people had if they once they were done working they listened to a radio and listened to a radio show or they sat on a stoop and talked to people outside and you know while you know like it was 
there wasn't this immediate sort of, you know, I, you know, get to the point kind of era that we're in right now, which is like, you know, don't use too many words. There's even apps for it, like how to speak more succinctly and not use all these words and whatever. She wound and revisited so many moments just to hammer home emotions that she kind of didn't need to do because they're so profound in just the, te the character telling their truth that we didn't need you know, another story about it and a, and a flashback to it. And so I started to weed out because, you know, you and Catherine said to me, stick to the thread, just hold on to that thread of, you know, what this story is about, you know, and I'm glad that that, that was my, that was my mantra. Like when I was doing it, that gave me the freedom. And also Michelle Hensley, who, you know, when you work with 10,000 Things Theater and she would do Shakespeare, she would always say, it, she would say, well, Shakespeare's dead and we're alive and we're going to tell this story. <laughs> so we are going to do this the way that we need to do it and mm -hmm. honor this person, you know, right? We, mm -hmm. we will get the story told. Those are the voices in my head about feeling okay about editing out huge chunks because this play is probably two hours and 40 minutes if it was fully acted, maybe even longer. Yeah, totally. And I, I'm, you know, I remember when I first read it, I was kind of like, this is the best Ibsen play I've ever read, <laughs> was like one of the thoughts that I had that it, but again, it was talky, like an Ibsen play is kind of talky. So I'm really excited to hear what you've done with it to kind of find the, the essence of the story, to find the sort of through line, but to do it in a way that is more, um, accessible to a modern audience that can't quite sit through that much talking. Another reason why I really wanted to tell this story is because of when I discovered it, which is, you know, George Floyd, you know, the shooting, they didn't stop just because the George Floyd. And we're still seeing mothers today on television, you know, on the news talking about, and I don't even know how they do it. I honestly do not know how these mothers you know, the spirit of their child have, you know, having passed, you know, through the systemic racism that's built into human beings in the United States that they're not even aware of. They're not even aware of. I, I, I honestly just don't even think if you don't allow yourself to just reflect into yourself and ask yourself is could this be a part of me? It probably will be. This play is all about motherhood and the loss of your children to systemic racism and how a young woman who, who's not even married or, you know, who's contemplating her future as a wife and mother spirals out of control because of what she sees around her and what she hears from her mother that happened to her half-brother years or you know years earlier I, I I thought about that I decided not to be a mother I decided to you know not have children that was a definite choice for myself and I then met somebody who had children and I became a mother to them um, and and I'm very very thankful for that experience um, but I have you know I have you know, grand nephews that look like me and have 
melanin and you know and I worry about them all the time all of the kids that I have taught I remember teaching at Summer Institute and we would have all these kids it was uh, not cost prohibitive and so we had you know grandmas that were it just saying you're gonna go to you're gonna go to this summer camp and I taught improv at this summer camp and um, the Trayvon Martin um, the verdict came and they d decided not to prosecute him and he went free or whatever and um, I was teaching at that time and all of the kids wore hoodies that day and you know were just wicked sad they were just gutted by this whole thing and I remember looking especially at all my little you know all of my young brown and black men in in the room that are under you know maybe one was 16 17 the rest were 12 13 14 just going like you know they live they live in places and they don't have the best support system and and I just was like and it's not about that obviously but I'm just saying like you don't you just don't know this country is really really trash when it comes to helping take care of our young people and all of that is what kind of fueled me into really wanting to direct this play I can think I can see all of my students and I feel the the pain of the female characters in this play that have complete breakdowns thinking about how can you bring into the world little black and brown babies when you know that at a certain point they're going to become aware and they're it doesn't matter what their education is it doesn't matter where they live how much you know little money they have the world will never see them as as good as as white people and once they start to recognize that what happens to their soul and that's how Rachel does a spiral in this play and yeah it, it lives I think it lives in all mothers this this idea yeah when you, when you know what's going on right that's now. I mean that's so powerful George it really is I mean it's just such a uh I don't know as a especially as a a white-bodied woman a white-bodied mother listening to it it like so much resonates of you know I had tons of fears before having kids of what kind of world I was bringing my children into and sort of the responsibility that I now have of raising these white males um, in this world and how to how to raise them in a way that will reshape the world to be a better place for everybody in it but it's also just I mean I, I just can like see stare right into my privilege at this time too of just how like yeah it was like it was very scary for me to bring children into this world but I didn't have these same fears. Can I tell you a funny story now to lift the mood and to actually, yeah, but also to add to this? <laughs> <laughs> it's the thing that we're, it's my, me and my buddy Ryan were laughing about this like crazy. So he's a bartender at work. I work at Crave and um, in the Galleria. And he just, you know, we're working yesterday and he, and he was waiting on this little, this grandma and, and she had had her like little six-year-old granddaughter in with her little blondie. And um, there was music playing, and it was like, you know, like a cool, it was like sh um, like a Shakira or a J-Lo or something like that. And he goes up to the table, and she says, do you know who sings this song? And he goes, he goes, um, I don't know, maybe Shakira or something. And she goes, who's Shakira? And he says, oh, I don't know. I She's a singer, but she's like, 
I don't know, maybe Colombian or I think she's Puerto Rican actually. She might be Puerto Rican. And she goes, Oh, am I Puerto Rican? It made, it made me laugh so hard when he retold this story to me on so many levels. And I thought to myself, in that moment, I first of all, now our, our running joke about everything is, um, hey, can you get me a glass? Am I a glass? Like, about anything. It just makes us laugh. Um, but, but then I, you know, it's that idea that children don't know who or what anything is until someone tells them. If you tell someone something is different or... Um, um, you know, or you, you tell them how to think about things as parents, right? And the world and the media and all of the, and the, and the, um, the peers at school and what have you. But that's how that freaking happens, you know, for a little, like, I, you know, it just reminds me of the first time that I was called a nigger, right? It's like, I was like, what? I mean, I kind of know what that word is because my family watched Roots together, you know, like whatever. And I'm so, that's pretty incorrect. Like in my mind, it didn't even make me feel bad until I deconstructed it. Like how it was said, like the joy of watching me have an effect by it, right? Like by this other kid who probably, you know, to this day didn't even really know what it totally meant or where it came from or whatever. Just heard it spewed at his house probably. And then decided this is how I'm going to get negative at you to make, to bully you in fourth grade, right? I don't know. To me, I just think about like how perfect children are. And that's why they were so featured in this play. It was so funny to have that recollection yesterday with such joy at seeing the innocence and then knowing you know like I think that's just the beautiful purity of four and five and six everybody wants to keep children happy and then they get to school and then someone does something and then parents explode and like say I don't know how that gets there but that's how it gets into their brains and I think it was such a strong choice too for you to keep the children's the voice of the child, like still really present in the play, even though, you know, within this podcast, within this adaptation. And I know that was challenging of figuring out how to get a child's voice into the podcast without, you know, having a child actor as part of the team. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about how that went down, but I think it it makes sense now hearing you talk about it, why it was so important to keep the character of Jimmy so present in the play. Yes. Well, and I will say this, there are there are more children than that because there's a whole scene with little girls. Yeah, yep. And it just, it kind of goes on and on and it's a lot of like, um, you know, oh, Mama Rachel, I went to school today and this thing happened and this thing happened. Oh, did it? Tell me more. Like, it's a lot of sort of like just showing you how Rachel engages and adores little children. They follow her around like she's the Pied Piper and it's like, and she wants it. She lives for children. And, and it was really, really important. And I wanted to do that, but I just was like, this doesn't, the, 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 the young girl scene didn't really add much to the play. Knowing that they exist 
important. N needing all of their, you know, here I'm a child, this is what a child sounds like, didn't need to happen. However, her relationship with Jimmy, which is the very first child that she meets at the very, very beginning of the whole play, Jimmy is her very first child that she falls madly in love with and lives in her building. And it, it shows her like, like a purest form of love before she's ever fallen in love with like as an adult. I think she's 16 or 18 in that scene. It shows how she snaps into this mode of like, you're just so darling and sweet and wonderful and aren't you just the cutest thing? And, and she's not quite out of playfulness in her life yet. Rachel is very much in a, still in the place of like, her and her brother Thomas, right? Because it's a simpler time too, right? Um, so you hang out with your family until maybe you date, some, maybe go on a, you know, picnic or something where your mom's probably behind you, or, you know, back in the day. So she's still like very playful with her brother in, in the house, like goofy and, you know, kind of like how I would play with my brother and stuff, but more when I was a 12 or 13, you know? So she's got a playfulness about her that is still very young. And when she meets this little boy, uh, Jimmy, gosh, she just, she just falls madly in love, tells her mom all about it. And her mom's response is, oh, great. Like as if, you know, it, she lets the, the, the Mrs. Loving lets you know that her daughter has been all about this for many years previously. And that's how we set the scene for who this, who, who Rachel is. Now we have this character, Jimmy, who is approximately five or six in the play. And I... I really just wanted to keep my cast and just like have somebody who was playing one of the older male characters, uh, John Strong or uh, Tom, uh, Rachel's brother. I wanted one of them to be able to do the voice. I had just worked with Mikkel earlier in, in the fall and he made me laugh so hard and he had such a playful spirit and he was so, he was so goofy and the way he came up with like, really fun ways of like doing these pieces that that we got to work on which it was written by people who have experienced incarceration it was so much fun these were delightful plays and delightful stories that we had got to um to inhabit and 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 play with Faye Price directed it and Mikkel just made me laugh so hard and he was so silly and playful that I knew that I wanted him in this play. I knew also that I wanted him in this play to play John Strong because he has this lovely deep voice. Did I think about that when he was going to be playing Jimmy? I did not. And I kind of panicked the first time that we had a rehearsal because I went, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. I mean, his voice is deep. So when he plays Jimmy, his voice is just about right here. It's not up here little boy voice it's it's oh yeah mama rachel it's like there and i was like oh, okay all right but the soul and the sweetness and he gets it all like and he's such a brilliant actor that 
that I just I just wanted to be that way. And then when Taj ended up recording it, I asked her, I go, can you like change his tone like a little bit or can you do anything? She goes, well, yes, but then it'll start to sound cartoony and we don't want that. And then she listened to it and she said, you know what, honestly, George, I think that I think that people will be able to just suspension of disbelief. I think that they will be able to do that and just let that just let it go. Well, uh, one thing I guess that I did kind of want to mention is that the reason why I felt that there it was important to do this as a podcast once it was especially once it was offered was that it's so triggering that I really felt that for actors to do this play eight shows a week or you know whatever to do it for four weeks a sit down at some theater I I mean especially after the pandemic and all that stuff and you know looking back on my life it's like I only want to do comedy that's kind of always been my forte and that brings me joy I don't need to do drama really kind of ever again unless it's, it's a story that needs to be told and I can't imagine going through to be someone who experiences racism every day in America and then do a play about people who experience it on another level that is so I mean it's like putting daggers in your in your eyes you know I'm like I mean I can't think of any I, I just cannot fathom doing a play that talks so heavy about the pain of an anguish of the lynching problem in the United States and do it two shows on Saturday and Sunday and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, at 7.30, you know, I, I just think that this, this is a lovely way out to get this story done. And I'm just very thankful that we were able to do it this way. Yeah, it's like being able to do it, but be kind to the people who tell the story by not forcing them to retell it and retell it and retell it and retell it. Like that's- 100%. There's enough of that in the world. Like maybe we just tell it once put it out there and then let people listen to it you know everywhere but right. not have to put the actors through it again yep. <laughs> yeah 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 100 percent. well i'm just like i'm i'm so grateful george of the leadership that you took and the artistic um just powerhouse that you are to take this on and to have done all of this and really like I know Elaine and I, sort of our goal with this project, or one of them, was to actually not be involved artistically, to really take a step back and let other people take the artistic lead and that we could just provide, you know, we could write a grant to get money to do it and um, and provide some of the infrastructure and some of the support around it. But I'm just, I'm so... Um, you know, you talk about getting your dream cast, but we got our dream director, and oh, I'm so grateful that's so to you. Sweet. It's true. It's true, and it really like to know how much you, how connected you felt to the story. It just, I'm, I can't wait to hear it in the podcast because I know it's going to come across. And yeah, I'm just so grateful and excited and happy that we got to make this happen, um, and that that all of you that you and all of the cast agreed to do it and yeah it's it's going to be really special yeah i'm i'm thrilled to hear it too the 
Rachel Project is brought to you by Rough Magic Performance Company, a professional theater company dedicated to supporting women artists and telling women's stories. The Rachel Project, direction and adaptation by George Keller. Sound design and engineering by Taj Ruler. Stage management by Salima Seal. The cast of The Rachel Project includes Darius Dotch, Thomasina Petrus, Mikkel Sapp, Essence Stiggers, and Maya Washington. The piano music in this podcast was written by J.L. Gaynor, a female composer, in 1898, and was performed by Aaron Gabriel. If you enjoyed The Rachel Project, please consider making a donation to Rough Magic in support of our mission of bringing women's stories center stage. Tax-deductible contributions can be made at www.roughmagicperformance.org. Also, please consider writing a review or giving us a five-star rating to help us spread the word about the Rough Magic Podcast.